You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Paul Vidic on the show with me today. He has an amazing new novel. It's called The Mercenary. And I'll tell you what, if you love uh, spy novels, uh, novels about spycraft and uh, about, um, uh, you know, the, the subversive nature of governments and the things that go on behind them, this is a must have for your to be red pile. And uh, I'll tell you what, I love the book so much. I'm super excited to talk about it today. Welcome to the show, Paul. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here, Hank. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Paul, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Uh, I uh, grew up in uh, a college town, Storrs, Connecticut. My parents were both professors. I must have been uh, seven or eight years old. And we had a bookcase near the foyer. And I remember walking by the bookcase and looking at the books there and taking one out and thinking, I can write one of these. And I I should try and write one of these at some point (laughs) in my life. I put it back. I, I don't have a memory of what the book was, um, but my father was a professor and he had written books and there were books in the house everywhere. My mother was a very literate person. So I'm sure I um, channeled some of their interest in literature and channeled, you know, the the desire to to write a book, but I had no idea what writing a book was. It was just an object and I could have my name on it. There, There's um, an interesting thing that happens uh, with kids sometimes, Paul, that especially kids that are fascinated with books is that there, there seems to be a moment when you realize that people make books, that they, they don't just, you know, appear out of the ether, that there, there are people behind them and they spend a lot of time writing them. And then, you know, another company, um, you know, edits and binds them, and then another company sells them. But they're ultimately produced by people. Um, com- having the background that you did with, uh, you know, being raised by two professors and uh, your dad a writer, uh, w- was that ever, uh, you know, a realization that you came to, or did did you just always understand the process behind a book? Um, just before I answer that question, I should say, I've never told this story to anyone because nobody has asked it, but, <laughs> but I have a very, very clear memory of it. Um, to answer the question, I, I, I had no idea what the, the process of um, writing entailed um, and, and certainly had no idea what it meant to um, hand a book over to an editor and a publisher and all the things that went into bringing um, that aesthetic object into the world. Um, and, and even when I started writing as a, you know, a, 
after college, when I first moved to New York, I still had no real clue. Um, and I, I think it's a bit of a mysterious process that you only begin to understand as you get close to it. Um, the idea that you need an agent uh, seemed sort of uh, not particularly understandable. Um, I could represent myself as well as anyone. But then it became clear that you know, agents there are for a real purpose, which is that um, they know the people who might have interest in your novel. And rather than, you know, a scattershot approach to sending something off to, you know, many, many strangers, an agent has a good sense of uh, who might be interested in the book that you've written. So I think the, the process of I'm still Having written four books, I'm still understanding the process and discovering some of the nuances of it. Uh, Paul, you wrote a really interesting blog post um, about four or five years ago now, depending on uh, what year we're in, uh, because this has been a, a weird year uh, that we kind of lose track of time. Uh, but you wrote an interesting blog post several years ago called The Literary Spy Novel. And you talk about this um, event that happened in your family uh, with your uncle and how this sparked, um, you know, through this obvious tragedy that, that, that happened in your family. This sparked um, a curiosity uh, by you to look at the world a little differently. Um, could, could you talk about that a, a little bit and, and what this did for your uh, sense of curiosity and how you might tell stories now. Uh, yes, the the incident that you're referring to is um, uh, involved uh, my mother's wife's uh, husband, Frank Olson, um, cousin by marriage, uncle by marriage. Um, he had worked uh, surreptitiously for the CIA. And died mysteriously in 1953 when he fell or jumped, um, depending on the version of the story you want to believe, from the 13th floor of the Stadler Hotel. That that story, that incident, uh, remained um, pretty unknown, except for the fact of his death for the family until 1975, when the circumstances of his death emerged. But in in the in the interim, as you know, being close to the family, I I saw the um, difficulty that my um, aunt had, um, not not knowing what he did, and, and Frank also not being able to talk to her about the work he did, and then later discovering that he also couldn't talk um, about his doubts about his work with his colleagues, because to do so would have been sort of to betray the trust of the job. And I saw him as a very lonely man, a, an insider wanting to get out. And, and ultimately, he got out because he was murdered. Um, and that character stuck with me. And, and as, as all writers do, you sort of, you know, write a lot. And then at some point in your life, if you're lucky, you hit on a story and find a voice that allows you to tell a story that is authentic. And in, in my case, 
my uncle's story allowed me to enter this world of the of the spy novel from the point of view of a character who had moral qualms about the work and wanted to get out. So that that aspect of um, the, um, the 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 character um, became my way into the world of uh, what I call the literary spy novel. But really, literary spy novel really simply um, identifies a novel that is character driven, um, where, um, language is important, um, character is important and, and plot is important. And the sorts of novels that I put into that category are the novels of Graham Greene, uh, the novels of John Le Carre, John, uh, the novels of Somerset Maugham and and Joe Cannon, who uh, is a is a writer today, and all of them uh, plots important um, and they there are thrilling elements to them, um, but they're not thrillers in the in the conventional sense. They are uh, the plot comes out of the doubts and concerns um, and, and character of the of the protagonist. Um, and that's what I've tried to do with my own my own novels. And I was fortunate to uh, have this example of the Frank Olson case to help me find a uh, voice that I could then use um, in the world, uh, the imaginary world that I create in my novels. We had Joseph Cannon uh, on the show about a year ago, and I I completely understand the the distinction, the delineation that you draw between uh, what you refer to as the literary spy novel, as opposed to maybe some of the um, the novels that come out of the current trend of, of plot-driven thrillers. Um, how do you draw that distinction, and and what is it that uh, that that separates these two camps, if you will? Uh, I think the I think there are two things that separate them. Um, the The first is the um, the care uh, with language, um, the the way in which the writer is a tries to be a stylist. Um, and not all stories have to be to be good stories have to be what I'll say called well written. Um, there are many <laughs> books that have sold very well that were not particularly well-written. Um, but, but being well-written, I think, um, is one of the criteria that separate genre fiction from literary fiction. The, the second uh, distinction is the way in which a literary work um, tends to look inside the interior um, the interiority of the the central character or central characters, and um, and you look at their their fears, their suspicions, their um, concerns, their loves, their regrets, um, and those things then shape what I'll call a three dimensional character. Out of that three dimensional character um, emerges uh, a plot or a storyline. And uh, I think the the greater the the 
three-dimensionality of your characters, the more likely it's going to be considered literary. And, and this, this distinction has nothing to do with the, the sales of a book. You can have sure. a, a wonderful literary book that doesn't sell particularly well, and you can have a, another book that's a thriller that uh, you know, sells extremely well, but you know, what happens is that you know, people read it and then they pass it along, and it doesn't really have uh, enduring quality. Graham Greene's books, for example, or Le Carre's books are um, written at a higher register of uh, style. And, sure. and, they, and those books by those authors have endured and will continue to be read for the beauty of the language and the sophistication of the characterization. So your, your first book um, that you published uh, came out in 2016, is that right? An Honorable Man? Yes. Um, what was it that, that drove you to write this first novel? Um, had had um, this desire to be a novelist been with you for a while? Uh, was there a, an inciting incident, um, you know, that dropped this story idea in, into, your, into your lap, as it were? Uh, what, what was it that, that took you from the life you were living to... Um, I'm going to write a novel now. Uh, this, the answer to this is two parts. The first is I came to New York when I was a young man out of college and wanted to to write novels, um, but I didn't have the confidence and my wife became pregnant. So I then launched on a business career, um, which was very successful. And I enjoyed it. But I sort of made a bargain with myself that when I was financially able to um, leave that job and write, I would. And that happened in my 50s, mid-50s, which was a little late for most writers. Um, and then I began writing short stories. And I had published several and one won an award. And I was happy with being a short story writer. I think the idea of writing a long novel or a novel of any length was daunting. Uh, but I got an a letter from an agent who had read one of the award-winning short stories and said, we love your writing, but we don't publish short, we don't represent short story writers. Do you have a novel? And I looked at my wife and I said, well, the only story I know that's worthy of the length of a novel is the story of this guy, Frank Olson, my uncle. I tried to write that and I probably wrote three or four versions and none of them were successful because it was a story I was too close to. And what I discovered is that in order to write well, you have to put some distance between yourself and the story, if it's a personal story in particular. Right. Uh, but I did find this character, the one I mentioned earlier, this person on the inside who wanted to get out. That loneliness of an individual with moral qualms doing work that he's uncomfortable with. So that character became the central character in An Honorable Man, George Mueller. And, and that then led me to write the book after that. And the third book I wrote, which um, came out uh, last year, 2020, called The Coldest Warrior, uh, I went back to that original story about my uncle and, and was able to fictionalize it because I was able to change enough things and put distance between the story and myself 
to be able to write something that was inspired by his death and his story, but wasn't his story. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. I, I think a lot of new writers make that mistake um, of they they write what they know and a lot of times there's a story or uh, a character or or whatever that is that is kind of traveled with uh with the writer for quite a while and they've they've wrestled with questions and uh and things like that and a lot of times a first novel is is uh the writer kind of working out some of those issues and some of the questions that they've had and, and different things like that and and I think you're absolutely right. That happens to a lot of people that you write that first book and you're just too close to it. It's just, it's too much of, of you. It's too much of your ideas about things. And when a couple of rewrites or, or maybe even attempting a new topic, once you've kind of purged all of that stuff that you've been carrying on, um, can, can do the novel a lot of good. Yeah. And there's another thing that's related to that. Um, and it's uh, it's a thing that characterizes uh, John Le Carre's books. Um, for it, now that he's passed away, and people are evaluating his uh, influence on the English literature of the last half of the twentieth century, I think he's he's risen to the pantheon of great writers. But for a long time, he was dismissed as a genre writer. Somebody who was sort of in that little cul-de-sac called the spy novel. <laughs> right. And uh, in fact, he is one of those writers, and I sort of think I'm in that category as well, who was able to take the constraints of genre and use them to free up an exploration of the human condition. And 
And and when you think about his books, what what makes them so powerful are obviously the language. He's a beautiful writer, characters. But he also does something that not many other writers in the last half of the 20th century did, which is he looked at the intersection between, let's call it personal freedom in organizational constraints. He put his characters in, in a bureaucracy. In his case, it was the MI6, the spy bureaucracy in England. And it's that tension between the, the, the personal faith and the organizational um, constraints, the organizational loyalties that um, produced a lot of the tension uh, and conflict in his books. And if you think about it, you know, what's one of the conditions of the 20th century? We all or most of us have worked in big organizations, in bureaucracies, whether it's right. IBM or it's, you know, the CIA or, you know, some other organization. And, and it's a thing we all sort of deal with in our lives, the, the need to, to go to work. And then when you're at work, you have, um, you know, in subtle ways, you're coerced into the group think that goes along with being in an organization. And that certainly is what happens in the CIA. And yet at the same time, you leave, you go home and you are yourself. And sometimes that conflict, um, you know, can create all sorts of tension. And certainly that conflict was very evident in Washington in the last number of years. As a... Uh... As a kid that grew up in the 70s and the 80s, um, the Cold War, uh, I, I got to witness uh, kind of the the height of the Cold War and then the the fall uh, of the Soviet Union, which, you know, arguably uh, may or may not have brought an end to the Cold War. Um, but your books, An Honorable Man, The Good Assassin, The Coldest Warrior, and now The Mercenary all occupy this this space and time of of uh, of. Uh, the Cold War. Um, why is this such a fertile um, uh, setting for a spy novel? And um, are there benefits to writing uh, about this time period as opposed to, uh, you know, a current spy novel that would be riddled with technology and um, the, the the plot would be completely different if it was set now? Um, what is it about this time period? Um, that fascinates you so, and and what are some of the benefits of writing in this time period? Um, I think one of the benefits of of looking over your shoulder a bit, um, you know, whether it's 10 years or 20 or 30 years, is that some of the issues um, from that earlier period are clearer. They're sublimated. Um, and, And it's sort of journalism which tries to be a report or a history in the in the moment is often wrong, and it it also often misses you know the subtleties of what's going on because you don't have the the um, the distance to to bring clarity. So that's one difference. The other is uh, I also grew up as a child of the Cold War, and I remember you know, the drop drills in school. You know, climbing under your desk to protect yourself from the atom bomb, which all seems sort of insane. Um, 
And I remember my mother not wanting us to drink milk in the early 60s because fallout from nuclear testing, uh, you know, had created radioactive iodine that fell into the grass that then the cows ate and then it got into the milk. So there were all of these anxieties um, that were a part of my growing up. Um, and and so in some ways, it, it's sort of natural for me to to to, to write novels about um, that time as a as a backdrop. Um, but the other thing that to me is fascinating is um, that the the men who went into certainly the early CIA in the fifties um, were young men who had gone to Ivy League schools, Princeton, Brown, Harvard, Yale, and idealistic young men who were caught up in the Great War against um, totalitarianism. And America was a democracy. We, we cherish our freedoms. And the Soviet Union was this, uh, you know, this, this dark enemy. Um, and what happened as the Cold War advanced through the 60s and through the Vietnam War, uh, a lot of these young men found that they were having to do things that were at the limit of legality. Um, and, and the big conflict for many of them was that they um, had to do things that sort of went counter to their own upbringing, whether they be you know, Catholic or otherwise. And I think of a guy named um, William Colby, who um, had run the Phoenix program in Vietnam and then became the director of the CIA in the 1970s, um, a devout Catholic who um, ended up doing some very nasty things. And then, you know, after he left the CIA, retired, um, you know, his autobiography, you sort of read into it the regrets that he had for some of the things that he did. Um, and to me, that, that those things sort of resonated because um, we, we live in a world in which a lot of men in that type of a position have to make choices between um, the, uh, you know, your, your personal face and the obligations of your job. And uh, if you're working in the CIA and you're confronting a hostile uh, world, um, sometimes you end up doing things that are, um, you know, th that you don't want to talk about. Um, and some people in the CIA sort of glibly refer to themselves as legally sanctioned criminals um, <laughs> because they're not breaking the law. They're being told to do things. They're doing it, you know, overseas. Um, but it may be suborning friends or it may be you know, extrajudicial uh, assassinations, you know, all of which is done to defend the, you know, the things we, we believe in and cherish, democracy, freedoms. Uh, but at the same time, it's, um, it, it's, it, it can create a lot of, uh, for some, not all, but for some, it can create a lot of uh, um, doubt. And those are the people who I find interesting. Um, in some ways, we're we're living in a different world now. It's there's still a lot of hostility in the world, but it's uh, it's not it's not as it was when we had the Soviet Union um, as our single largest 
enemy. You know, then we sort of we could measure annihilation. We could measure hope. We could measure border. But at the moment, um, the violence is sort of comes in the form of terrorism, and it's stateless. In some ways, that's more upsetting because you don't know what's you know how to defend against it. Um, and so it, I think there's a little bit of what's going on now as people look at the Cold War, which is a little nostalgia for the for the Cold War. Uh, it was known. It was a, it was an easier world to know about, and you sort of took some comfort in the fact that in a world in which the two adversaries, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, had mutually assured abilities to kill each other, um, that that smart people, rational people on both sides would be uh, careful not to to pull the trigger. Well, so you're the button, right? Uh, so your new book, The Mercenary, takes a look at uh, at this time from the other side of the coin, um, at, at least in the beginning. Um, what was the the motivation for this book? What was the I, I'm really fascinated by where stories begin and what what was the first kernel of this story uh, and, and how did it birth? Um, I was fascinated by the uh, 1980s Moscow. Um, it was the Soviet Union was the twilight of its power. And that struck me as a good place to start a Cold War novel. It was at that moment when the country's illusion of dominance met the grim reality of a crumbling system. And typically what I do is I start with a place, a setting. And that setting sort of establishes the, 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 the characters uh, who are drawn to a place and establishes the atmosphere and sort of the story's imaginary world. And so before I did anything, I said, let me see if I can set this in Moscow, because there's got to be interesting stories there, given the end of the Soviet Union, um, the corruption that was taking place. Um, And and yet it it continued to be a significant threat to the United States. So when I began doing my research, I then came across um, autobiographies of high ranking KGB officers who had successfully defected to the West. And there were four or five of these men, some executed for trying, others who one was, two were successfully exfiltrated. And that that became sort of the, the establish it, uh, the, the premise for the novel I wanted to write, which was an effort to get somebody out of the Soviet Union um, who had secrets that would benefit the United States. And so it, uh, that was the origin. It just, I, I thought I'd, I'd done a novel in Cuba, two in the United States. Um, and I thought uh, Moscow um, would be a great location. And, and as with most stories, there's a reason you um, tell a particular type of story in a particular place. Um, my spy novels tend to be set in Berlin or London, some in Washington some in Vienna, but they're not typically set in um, Montevideo or in San Francisco because there really aren't too many spies of interest in those locations. But Moscow and Berlin and London 
uh, are hotbeds of, of activity. So it was natural to, to think about setting uh, the book in Moscow. What sort of research uh, is available to you now um, to, to look at you know, the way life was, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago uh, or, you know, technologies that were available then or, or what, you know, how do you immerse yourself in, uh, in a world that's so secretive um, and so that you can tell it as realistically as you do? Um. Well, typically I research a book for about six months and uh, the best research for me tends to be biographies or autobiographies of um, people who lived at that time. In this case, uh, I read the um, autobiographies of several KGB officers who um, defected. I also read uh, autobiographies uh, of American CIA officers who uh, were the handlers of several KGB officers who were not exfiltrated, were executed. Uh, and I added to that um, by reading accounts of journalists uh, who lived in Moscow at that time um, and who, in one case, uh, the, the journalists had been born in the United States, but his parents had been Russian. And, and when he went to Moscow, he um, researched, you know, where his parents had come from, the village outside of Moscow, and, and gave a lot of color to um, Moscow at that point in time, which was the mid-1950s. So in some ways, it was just absorbing as much as I could uh, about Moscow at that time. And once I had brought all of that stuff together into my own mind, I felt that I could begin outlining the book. And, and then when I began writing, um, a lot of the details that I'd picked up during my research, I was able to put into the book itself. And typically, with my characters, I will create pretty extensive dossiers on their lives um, before I begin writing. So I know them pretty completely. I know where they're born, what faith they practice, what scotch they drink, if they happen to drink scotch, um, the tics in their behavior, um, all this stuff that allowed me to represent them uh, as sort of three-dimensional characters on the page. And that that sort of care that you give the characters beforehand really shines on the pages uh, of this novel. And I, I guess that's what what uh, what brings out the literary nature of this is there's so much care that goes into the characters ahead of time. Well, thank you. I, I, I do. The one thing I'd say about any. Artistic endeavor. Um, uh, is that you, you need talent, but without hard work, your talent doesn't take you very far. Right. And uh, I was in the music business for 20 years, and I always remember, you know, impressed by a Madonna, who, who I loved. 
Um, in many ways, she wasn't a great singer, but she was a great dancer. And more than being a singer or dancer, she had a real commitment to work, work ethic. And I think when you when you look at all the people who have been successful as artists, musicians or um, dancers, writers, um, those who are most successful are those who work really hard at it. Um, right. And, you know, the, 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 the John Le Carre's of the world, what's phenomenal in, to me is that here's a guy who died at the age of 89. He published his last book when he was 88. And, and over the course of his career, I think he wrote 27 books. The eight of them were in the last 10 years or 12 years. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, he, 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 he committed himself to his craft and, uh, he continued to practice it, uh, throughout his life. Well, the mercenary, uh, when you're hearing this is available everywhere now, uh, in hardcover or Kindle edition. However, you like to read books, you can grab it. It's available now. We'll put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find uh, Paul, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online? I have a website and it is paulvidic.com and that's P-A-U-L-V-I-D-I-C-H.com. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Paul, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I love The Mercenary. We're sending everyone to pick up a copy of it. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Well, thank you. 